Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. The guys will bring them to you. I, I, I notice some people kind of every week getting a Bible and taking it with you. We're, you know, it would be cool uh, if after a while you like went over to the bookstore and got yourself a Bible. That would be a good thing. And you can go in and kind of get one that's customized. You need a study Bible, which translation. And so the bookstore, those guys are over there. They're really helpful. And, uh, and so I get it, but you're welcome to take that and grab it. We want to make sure you get one. If you get a Bible from us, it's page 526. It's Matthew chapter 7. If you're following along in the study guides, you're going to be a little shocked here because we pulled an audible. We've changed the order just a bit. So we said we would be looking at this week three. It's actually going to be today. And, and the title is, Not Everyone's Going to Heaven. And these are hard sayings of Jesus, things that he says. And we could, we could do way more than five weeks, obviously, on this. But, but to, to kind of select, as we understand the, the people that are in the campuses and things that we want to make sure we get down, I kind of select some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And, and today is, is obviously a, a huge one. I'll give you the context in a second, but let's look at the passage it's, it's Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, 22, 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. So he's saying, look at it, not everybody's going to heaven. But now he gives what to me is really alarming. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And then I'm going to say, look at what we did. We prophesied in your name. And in your name we cast out demons, and in your name we perform miracles. So you give me a bunch of people, for our context, let's just do it this way, a bunch of church people, and they're going to go, wait a minute, I was one of your guys. I was in church. I went to that Redemption Gilbert. I was teaching in a Sunday school class. I, I, I was working in different ministries. We could even get down into personal life. I was praying. I was giving. I was fasting. And then I will declare to them, verse 23, this scare me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That should grab your attention right away. Even a casual reading of this by a, a non-scholar would tell you this is serious stuff. Jesus seems to be saying, and he is, that not only not everybody's going to heaven, but apparently there's some people who think they are who aren't. One of the things I've done over the last, uh, I'm going to say month, I, I've had two separate meetings with our pastoral staff, and then I had a third Thursday last week to talk about some of the things that I want to talk about on the 16th of October. And, and, and always whenever we do kind of a state of the campus address, it's a past, present, future. And one of the things that we see, and I would say it's, it's a characteristic, so we, it came out of a discussion of distinctives. One of the things that we see often is that we will have people who will visit or people who are new to the Gilbert campus. And after a period of time, they will say to me, or they'll send an email, or they'll talk to somebody that they're connected with. When I came here, I thought I was a Christian, but I discovered while I was here, I really wasn't at all. And that may, that may be the experience of some of you in this room. 
You know, I came here and thought I was a Christian for whatever reason, probably all of the normal ones. I mean, it may be as simple as I was born in America. I mean, I've had the discussion when they say, well, you, are you a Christian? Yes. I, I, I was born in America, born in Kansas, and drive a Chevy. Okay. Well, that makes you a farmer. It doesn't make you a Christian. Okay. So we've heard all of those. I have a friend who was sharing with his mom. His mom was an unbeliever, and she was dying. And, 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 and literally on her deathbed, she said, you know I'm a Christian. I've always paid my taxes. Okay, so there's those series of things. So we may go, oh, that's way extreme, but I'm telling you, and there are people who say, I'm a Christian, I've been in church all my life. What Jesus seems to be saying here is that being in church all your life doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're a follower of Christ at all. There's another book, I noticed Susan was reading Am I Really a Christian? And a friend had recommended it to her just to take a look at. And so there's some of these over in the bookstore. My guess is, I'll mention it probably, I don't know how many are over there. But, but if they're not there, just tell them to order them or he'll order a box or something and we'll have them next week. In the foreword, just, I'll just read to you. In the foreword, The endorsement reads this. Most of us think it's wise to visit a doctor every now and then for an examination. It's reassuring to gain a clean bill of health, but it's also a relief when we identify a problem before it's too late to deal with it. However, many of us who live in the world of, quote, modern Christian America and beyond, recoil at the thought of examining our lives to see if God's word gives our Christianity a clean bill of health. Yet this is precisely what Paul told the Corinthians, and then he quotes, and this would, this would be a strong verse for us. Throughout our time, we've gone back to this verse over and over again, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not. Test yourself. When the author gets to his introduction, he said, this book is aimed at convincing you that you may not be a Christian. I, I want you to ask the question, am I really a Christian? Because I'm convinced that there are a lot of people in this world who think they're Christians who aren't. Now, hearing that, you may be tempted to ask, what kind of self-important jerk writes a book like this? <laughs> who delights in insulting people? To be honest, I am self-important jerk most of the time. You can ask my friends. But if you'll receive it, I'm writing this book because I genuinely want to help you. We who profess to be Christians in the world today have a serious problem. Many of us are confused about a matter that is larger than life and death, namely whether everyone who claims to be a Christian really is. And so in this process, here's what he's saying. I just want you to take an honest look at your life. This book is not written... For those of you who are out there wondering about the faith and, and you have questions, there are probably other books that would be more helpful to you. But if you're somebody who says, yeah, Jesus is Lord here, fall into this category, he's saying this might be a helpful tool. A helpful tool as you do a, a self-examination. And, and again, I love the imagery. We regularly are encouraged to, to go to the doctor and w women seem more concerned about kind of that annual health checkup than men, but, but we're concerned after 50 you need to do this, after 60 you need to do it more often, okay? And, and we're concerned about that. What, what kind of health condition are we in? What shape are we in? And, and he's right. It's good to hear that. And it's good to catch something. You know, oftentimes you'll hear, this is really serious, but we've caught it early. 
And all he's saying is what we say to you on a really a frequent basis, and that is regularly, I don't know what that means, by the way, regularly you should examine your life to see if you're genuinely converted. And that's exactly what Jesus is, is dealing with. This passage comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So turn back to, to Matthew chapter 5, and if you have a red-lettered Bible, meaning the words of Jesus are in red, if you have a red-lettered Bible, you're going to see that essentially all of Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 are red letters. This is Jesus' teaching. What many would argue is the, is the most profound sermon ever preached. He begins with the Beatitudes, very familiar, blessed are. And when he gets to, to verse 21 of chapter 5, there's a section in here where he kind of challenges what they've always heard. So look at it, verse 21. You have heard the ancients were told, verse 22, but I say to you. Verse 27, you have heard it said, verse 28, but I say to you. In fact, that's the passage we'll be looking at next week, by the way. Verse 31. It was said, verse 32, but I say to you. Verse 33, again, you have heard, verse 34, but I say to you. Verse 38, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Verse 43, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, we could take all of them. Let's just take the first one. He said, you've heard it said by the ancients that you should not commit murder. Whoever commits murder will be liable in court. But I say to you, whoever is angry at his brother shall be guilty before the court. What Jesus does is take all of this external behavior and he thrusts it down and says, no, this is more a heart condition. Probably the classic of those is the passage we'll look at next week there in verse 27. You've heard it said, I shouldn't commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman and lusts for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So he's saying there's an external behavior to be sure. We want to be concerned about that, but I'm much more concerned about your heart being in compliance than your behavior because if your heart is in compliance, your behavior will be in compliance. Your behavior might be in compliance, but your heart might not be. So he's driving this home. When, when he gets to chapter 6, he gives us really three real good illustrations of it. Here's the overriding in verses uh, 1 through 24 of chapter 6. Here's kind of the overriding principle. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. So, verse 2, so when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet like the hypocrites. Rather, when you give, don't let the left know what the right's do it. Verse 5, when you pray, you're not to pray like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue, but he's saying, you go away where no one's going to see you. Verse 16, when you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. They neglect their appearance, but you wash your face. So, so here's what he's saying in these verses. Here's these external compliances, but I don't want you. He's not saying here, I don't want you to not pray, and I don't want you to not give, and I don't want you to not fast. I just don't want you to do it in a hypocritical way. Well, what would be a hypocritical way? Well, he said, here you go. Remember the story where Jesus and the disciples are watching people give? And then there's a, a little widow who comes who gives the, the smallest fraction of coin available to her. And Jesus said, she in her poverty has given more than he in all his wealth. 
Well, that's the, what he's addressing here in, in verse 2. He said, don't give, uh, uh, when you give to the poor, don't sound the trumpet. So literally what they would do is they would give very publicly. So there would be a guy that would precede him, especially these big and Mort would say, I'm going to give this anonymously, and then everybody, Mort, and they'd name the fellowship hall after him or, or whatever, whatever's normal in that context. He said, don't do that. When you pray, verse 5, don't pray, they, they, they stand. What they would do is coordinate the time of day, the prayer time, with, with where they would be. So all of a sudden, here's what they do. They know they're going to pray at a specific time. Right at that time, they would just happen to be at 24th and Camelback, okay? And they'd stop traffic, and they'd begin to pray in the hopes they would go, look at how spiritual they are. When they would fast, they would let themselves go. They wouldn't clean themselves up. So they would go, oh, he's having a bad hair day. No, he's fasting. He's a man of God. And he said, listen, I want you to fast. I want you to pray. I want you to give. I don't want you to fast and pray and give like that. See what he's saying? He's looking way beyond, way beyond the action and into the heart of the actor. That's what we're concerned about. That's what he's addressing. So, so we can fake each other, and maybe even in some cases, either out of ignorance or, or, or really just out of sin, we can even begin to sort of fake ourselves, but I can't fool God. He looks through all of those externals and looks right to the heart condition. That's what he's saying. See how that ties into what we're looking at? When he gets to verse 24, then 25 through the end of chapter 6, that's a great pass. You're looking for kind of hope in the world you're in. That's a great passage. Don't worry about your life. Don't think like a Gentile. Seek first his kingdom. Don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough trouble of its own. Now, what I want to do is to go to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, and kind of give us the context leading up to the passage we have before us. So let's look at verse 13 and 14. And let's do it against this backdrop. Let's say you're here today and you go, Ah, this is all, it's really hard. The Bible stuff is hard. I don't know Greek. Okay, this is one of those passages that are great passages for you to, to get a blank sheet of paper. Some of you can do it right now. You got paper with you. Or when you go home, just take 15, 20 minutes and let God begin to speak to you through this passage because you can draw real easily. You can begin to chart this out. This is a really great passage to begin to deal with because here's what he does. He gives you a command right away. So, so he says, enter. It's in the aorist tense. It's a demand. It requires specific action. So he's saying, I, I don't want you to sit back. I don't want you to think about it. I don't want you to ponder it. I want you to do it. What's it? Well, he says, I want you to enter. And then he tells you where to enter. Through the narrow gate. And now he's going to give you a, a contrast. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there's many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there's few that find it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, 14. Where have I got you? That's the second week in a row. Well... I'll be fine. If you were believers, you would have known it was chapter 7. That right there is evidence you're not genuinely converted. We should stop right now. 
I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, that's starting to be a regular thing. I'm concerned about that. That's not good. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I'm sorry. That, and you see that contrast? I'm not going to go through all that again, but now you can see it. Okay? He's entering. That's the command. Kent Hughes writes this. One of the worst things that can be taught in religion is that all roads eventually lead to heaven. This isn't true. And of course, which is bad enough in itself, all lies are harmful. But in addition to being false, the idea that all ways are equally good is damnable since the one who follows uh, any way other than Jesus will perish for all eternity. That's, that's dealing with the cultural command. So, so we saw it. We actually talked about this last week in the context of 9-11. Remember? What, what happened to those that died on 9-11? What happened to the hijackers? What happened to the first responders? What happened to those that were in the tower or the collateral damage from that event? And we said we saw a lot of theology there. And it's very, very helpful. It's very, you, don't, you don't have to be <coughs> extraordinarily smart. All you need is a little bit of common sense and try to connect sentences together. And you begin to see how, how what we're talking about really begins to impact the world around you and vice versa. So, so you have the conversation all the time. Wouldn't be unusual. I'll get in conversations periodically like this with somebody who said, what do you do? And I'll tell them, and I go, well, that, I'm glad that works for you. That, I'm not into that. And I'll say, what are you into? Well, I'm just kind of into this and that. And, and, and they'll say, it, after, after all, it really doesn't matter because we all pray to the same God. We all worship ultimately the same God. So it's, it's like spokes on a wheel. They just ultimately all lead to the hub. And, 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 and even if I, it doesn't matter, not only does it not matter, I, I'm really sincere about what I believe. Well, we looked at that last week. So those people who are around, you may be here and say that. It doesn't really matter as long as I'm sincere. If that's true, then the hijackers have to be in heaven, right? Who's more sincere than those dudes? But it's not that. And so we're dealing with something here that's really, really important. I'm going to put you through a little exercise. I'm going to really take time to make sure I quote this correctly. Okay? Keep your finger right there in Matthew chapter 7 because we're coming back. Turn to the right to page 634 if you've got a Bible from us. And it's Ephesians chapter 2. And so many of you, your Bible almost falls open to that because we go there frequently. If it doesn't, we're really glad you're here because this will be really important to you. If it does, then you need to be reminded of this amazing truth. Because what do I have to do to go to heaven? How, what do I need to be saved, be redeemed, be delivered? What do I do to, to, to spend eternity with God? When Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked. Now, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, but he's talking about all of mankind as well. We were sons of disobedience, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ. Verse 8. So here it is. For by grace you have been saved. So how am I saved? Not through faith, through grace. I'm saved by grace through faith. The faith is the evidence of God's saving grace. And that's not of myself. In other words, I can't conjure that up. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no man should boast. So what Paul's saying is, uh, how, how do I move from a sinful person separated from God 
into what God calls a saint united with God? How do I change my designation, sinner to saint, destination, hell to heaven? And the reality is that's changed by grace, unmerited favor. It has nothing to do with me. Now, the evidence of that will be faith. So how do I know I've received God's saving grace? I'll have faith. Is that all there is? Just believe and it's done? Well, here's what he's saying now. That faith that truly saves, verse 10, I'm created, I'm his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So here's what's going to happen. There will be an external change, but I'm changed from the inside out. It's not about me conforming with certain requirements and therefore I'm now acceptable to God. Rather, it's me having my heart changed and now my life begins to look changed. So some of the phrases we'll talk about on the 16th, phrases we had around here for a long time, changed lives, changed lives. A transformed life becomes contagious. That, that, that my heart is changed. And therefore, everything around me begins to be changed in my life, ultimately. Let's look at another passage, and we get the specificity of the gospel. It's it's page 624. It's 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the gospel. Same author. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you receive. And here's the gospel, verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sin, according to the scripture, and that they buried him, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scripture, and then he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and then ultimately to five hundred. So what we're talking about, what we need to know, because there's an intellectual, you can go back to Matthew 7, by the way, there's an intellectual component to this, what I need to know is that I'm a sinner, My sin has separated me from God. The wage of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So salvation comes as the creator God extends to his people saving grace. He opens your eyes. He allows you to see the truth. We saw the video last week when Kirsten was talking about sitting alone, reading a Bible, anybody sharing with her, anybody talking to her, and all of a sudden the Bible became clear to her. That, that, that's a beautiful picture of salvation. That happened to me, March, whatever it was, March 6, 1980. Sitting out, and I'm absolutely convinced there's this moment in time where at this specific moment in time, my destination was changed from hell to heaven, designation sinner to saint and it was totally a work of God he opened my eyes to understand this and the evidence that he had done that work in my life is that now I believed so here's what he's saying in the passage before us Matthew 7 13 enter go get in there pass through pass through the narrow gate now he's going to contrast this. So I just took a simple sheet of paper and I just wrote narrow gate and then I took his word and the gate is wide. So I got a wide gate and a narrow gate. So now he, he says the wide gate is the, is the broad way that leads to destruction and there's many who enter in through it. 
So here's what he's saying to you. There is a wide gate, a relatively easy gate. It leads to destruction, and it's very heavily traveled. On the other hand, he says, enter by the narrow gate, verse 14, for the gate is small, the way is narrow that leads to life, and there's few that find it. So this whole world that says, we all pray to the same God, we're all about this. No, that's not what Jesus says. We're all the children of God. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus said there's a broad way, there's a narrow way. I want you to go through the narrow way. And he tells us what it is. He says, I am the way. Now, some of you are like me. You got saved or converted or redeemed as an adult. I was 30. Well, all of a sudden now, you begin to live your life, and sometimes without even really saying much, just the people see the change around you, and they begin to ask you questions, and and then you'll begin. I certainly had it in my life. You had to, I'm sure. You begin to share this, and they'll go, that's so narrow. Who do you think you are? Well, here's the deal. I really did think I was somebody. Until now, I don't think I'm anybody. And it is really narrow. I didn't make it that way. Jesus did. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And if I want to get to the Father, I'm going to have to go through him. I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved, John 10, 9. Peter summarizes all of this and says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is one God, one mediator, also one God in, in men, the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 5. Now, now here, here's what he's saying, because I have for a long time thought, okay, there are two ways here, and this way is marked a broad way that leads to hell. And this way is marked narrow way that leads to heaven. What he's really saying is as we look at it, we look at two gates and they both seem to say heaven. There are not many people who you know who are on the broad, easy way of saying, ah, I'm going to hell, but it's not a big deal. I mean, most of, most of us, if we're semi-serious about it, go, you know, there may be different ways, but I'm pretty confident in what I'm doing. I'm pretty confident this is the right way. He also, Jesus says to me, something really interesting, in that he says this easy way seems to be heavily traveled. There's many on it. And he said, on that narrow way, on that Jesus way, his word's not mine. There's few who find it. So here's my, here's my theology. Born, raised, Catholic, grade school, high school, college. Kind of got away from it, trying to figure it all out. Still very curious, very curious about spiritual things. When, when Susan and I moved, uh, we lived in the same house for like 22 years with our girls. And we moved, I had all these books, and I don't in the new house have a, have a place for them. I, have, I don't have near the space. So the guy that came and got them said I gave him 3,000 books. So he took the books, and then I, 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 I don't know, thousands left. And there were all sorts of really goofy books, and, and some good, some bad. Some, but there were like Edgar Cayce. There was, a, there was a lot of stuff, so I was very concerned. So there was always that little sense about the spiritual things. But he's, but I, I, so I, I ended up with this kind of view. Here's what my view was. Okay, pretty much everybody went to heaven. Not Hitler, not Ahmadinejad, 
not your ex-wife, okay? Like those, those, those didn't. Everyone else got it. And then, even as a follower of Christ, I kind of developed this idea that thought, okay, God's a little like the PGA Tour. We all tee off, 144, and then the top, you know, the low 70 and ties, they go to heaven. And then as I read a passage like that, that doesn't seem to see it. It's like half go and half don't. Half get it, half don't. It seems to say that there's a group, a big group, who never does get it. And there's a smaller group who does get it. And there's nothing special about the small group in and of themselves. It's not that they're smarter than anyone else, clearly, or any of those other things. It's just God sheds grace on them. He says, there's this broad way, and I will tell you, there's a lot of people around who love it. Those people will say, I'm just, I'm just spiritual. I don't even know what that means. It's very attractive. It's inclusive. It's indulgent. It's, it's self-oriented. It's very permissive. But he said, ultimately, it leads to destruction, not annihilation, not, but total ruin and loss. That's what it leads to. There's a way that leads to life, and it's eternal life with Jesus, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Verse 15, he says, beware. So whenever we see those, we kind of pull up short and take notice. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. And he said, you'll know them by their fruit. So he says, beware, be on guard, be on the alert. Look out for false prophets. And he says, they come as ravenous wolves, but they come in sheep's clothing. I would say probably sometimes dressed as even shepherds. And they're clever and they're deceptive. When Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, it's recorded in Acts chapter 20, he's talking about his time with them. He spent three years with them. He's talking about how he had taught them, and he didn't shrink from teaching them the whole word of God. But he says to them, be on guard yourselves for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in. Well, what do these false teachers look like? Some are heretics. They would just openly deny things. They would teach you things that are blatantly contrary to the word. Uh, some are, are men, and I see them around, who have been around church and have now moved away. They've decided that isn't true, and they want to drag people with them. Uh, one element they have is a deceiver, and I just thought I'd quote from John MacArthur about this. The false shepherd, the deceiver, on the other hand, gives the appearance of orthodoxy, frequently with great declarations and fanfare. Not a liberal, not a cultist, but one who speaks favorably of Christ, the cross, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, and so on, and who associates with true believers. He may go out of his way to appear orthodox, fundamental, evangelical. From his looks, vocabulary, and association, he gives considerable evidence of genuine faith, but he's not genuine. He's a fake and a deceiver, and his speech of orthodoxy is but a living lie. He writes about these false prophets. This, I thought this was kind of interesting. And he gives like three characteristics or two here. He said, one, oftentimes they're always pleasant and positive, and oftentimes they appear to be sincere. But their sincerity and their positiveness and their smile and their cheeriness 
can really cover up a false teaching. Ultimately, here's his concluding paragraph, by the way. If they're so deceptive, how can we identify them? Most frequently, they'll show their true colors by what they don't affirm. In other words, they're identified not so much by what they say, but by what they don't say. They usually don't openly deny Jesus' divinity or his substitutionary atonement or the depravity and lostness of man and the reality of sin, such things. They just simply ignore them. So, so they're going to not use a word like sin for it might be offensive. And, and you, you have to be very, very careful in here. That's what I mentioned last week. When I talk about us and our desire to be relevant, a lot of genuine believers, I think overly concerned believers, are very afraid that for the sake of being relevant, all of a sudden you won't use words like sin or you won't talk about the depravity of man or you won't talk about the substitutionary atoning death. Watch a little, if you can, not on a full stomach, watch a little Christian television. <laughs> and, and you get a steady parade of this every night, every day, all day. You'll get them talking, and in some instances you have subtleties of theology, and you'll want to get into atonement and stuff, but, but they'll, they'll talk all, all, almost total absence of the depravity of man rarely, rarely speak of the sovereignty of God and never touch the doctrines of grace. They'll, they'll major in the Old Testament and their primary concern seems to be your physical health and your financial prosperity. And so you'll hear him say, God doesn't want you poor, and God doesn't want you sick, and in reality, he may want you exactly poor and sick. It's very dangerous what they teach. It's very destructive. And they are, they are at best ignorant and at worst false teachers who are out to deceive you and ultimately separate you from your dough. Who sow, I think, just, just seeds of dis personal destruction and hurt and pain. You, you, you want to see something sad, you come into a hospital room where a patient is gen genuinely seek, sick and you've just had one of these health and wealth guys in there and basically said to him, there must be something wrong with you because God would not want you here. That's not true. I always, I, this the silliness of that. Here's the evidence of that that's silly. We all die ultimately. And what he's doing, or she, is making a direct connection between your, your physical and financial well-being and your spiritual well-being. Now, I want to make sure here, okay, if there's, a, if there's a pain or there's a hardship or there's a sickness, I should look at my heart. Is there any sin there? But to say, if you are God's, you will. Are you telling me Bill Gates? You want to run down the list here? Guys you know in your life who don't give a rip about Jesus. He's just another thing to chant on the golf course. You're telling me these are spiritual giants? Or Paul, when he's got a thorn in the flesh, should I go to Paul and say, man, I'm telling you, just claim that healing, Paul. Just claim it. Speak it. Believe it. I said, with a guy who's a pastor and loves Jesus probably more than I do, it always feels like. And his wife has cancer. My wife has cancer. And he said, I'm just believing God to heal her. And I said to him, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? Tell me what you're saying. 
and, and, and he didn't have a very good answer, to be honest with you. But what he was saying is, is what they've said in all the, like, the meetings they go to. Now, what he's saying is, if I believe enough, God will heal her. Or if she believes enough, God will heal her. And I said, you know, I just, I don't find much comfort in that. Number one, I don't think it's true. Number two, there's not very comforting. I believe that God can heal, but I don't believe that my belief obligates him to heal. That's the key. And same thing is true in the area of wealth. All of a sudden, it's just, it's just like a genie in a bottle that I find on the beach, and I begin to rub it. And if I believe, I'll have my three wishes. I wish this deal will close. I wish I get to be a manager. I wish. Listen, here's the gospel. This is huge right here. The same gospel you preach in Paradise Valley, you got to be able to preach in Calcutta. That's a big deal. you got to watch out for these dude and dudettes. Because they will lock you into bondage. They come along like they're trying to give you freedom. They're not giving you anything freedom. At all. Watch out for them. How are you going to know them? Well, ultimately, they'll be revealed. That's what he says. Ultimately, you'll see them in their fruit. Ultimately, if you look long enough at their life, or you look at the people around them, or you listen to them, they'll show you the colors. We'll have to come on and say something stupid like Jesus appeared to me at the foot of my bed and said, if I don't have $5 million by the end of the week, he's going to take me home. That did not move me to give, by the way. But you know what I'm saying and variations of that. They're all around you. And, and, I, and I, I don't particularly care about it in and of itself until you see the damage it does to all of the people around you. And you begin to see that, especially when you see somebody who's hurting uh, financially or, or physically. Now, the passage before us, verse 21, J.C. Ryle writes this, The Lord Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application. Listen to Ryle now. He, he, meaning Jesus, turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers so here, here's what we're saying you want to take a look at your life you want to examine your heart D don't think just because you prayed a prayer for example that you're necessarily in heaven we'll talk about it in a moment but here's what jesus says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom and then many will say these are the things i've done and i'm going to declare i never knew you now, now, here's what I know from dealing with this passage, is you have a tendency to go, boy, I hope the person to my left, or I hope the person to my right is listening. I wish Bob was here. I wish Beth was here. I wish, and then you fill in the blank and say, I wish they were here. They really need that. Well, since they aren't, and you are, let's assume God wants you to hear this. This is not designed, by the way, to shake your faith. It's designed to strengthen it. At the end, some of you have a MacArthur Study Bible. At the end of the MacArthur, after you get to the book of Revelation, the next page John does some things and some doctrine and all this. But right before it, he has character of genuine saving faith. So let me just kind of take you through this. I'm designed to just get you to think. Not, not at all. Not at all to try to shake up your faith 
but to ground it deeper and maybe to take some of you who say, yeah, I'm sure I really am, to where you go, you know what, I'm not. John has a list in here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things that are not evidence that you are or aren't a believer, but we typically think they are. I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, moral visibility. In, in, in other words, it's what uh, Jesus says to the, to the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, Matthew 23, 27, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like a whitewashed tomb Outside beautiful, inside filled with dead men's bones. So we can, we can really go back to the passages we've, we've looked at already in these 40 minutes and, and, and bring them all here. All those guys that say, look at him when he prays. Just because they're praying doesn't necessarily mean they're in the kingdom of God. The second thing is intellectual knowledge. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, even though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish hearts were hardened. So there are all sorts of people, and I see this all the time. There are people who know the Bible far better than me. They know the, the word of God, but they don't know the God of the word. The third is religious involvement. Clearly, the Pharisees come to mind. In our context, it would be people who are here. I mean, you might look around and somebody say, are you a Christian? say, sure. I was in church Sunday. I didn't just go to church, I worked in children's ministry or front line, or I'm leading a small group, or I'm doing a sermon. So I, you can be doing what I'm doing. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite Spurgeon toys, tells a story of a pastor on the other side of London who was one day converted under his own teaching. <laughs> and it was this wonderful moment where this guy, we don't encourage this in here, by the way, where this pastor is preaching and somebody stands up and said, I believe our pastor's been converted and somebody on the other side of the room stands up and said, this is what we've been praying for. So I'm sure that there are men and women, unfortunately, in pulpits who are not followers of Christ. Active ministry, begin to see that conviction of sin there's this moment in acts chapter 24 when paul is sharing his faith with a guy by the name of felix and luke tells us as paul was discussing with him about righteousness and self-control felix became frightened and said go away for the present and when i find time i'll summon you and my guess is at that moment he was overwhelmed by his sin assurance of salvation would be another one so you have people who would say in the simplest form, I, I, I know I'm a Christian because I walked an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade. I prayed a prayer at summer camp. I mean, we've been at this long enough in here to know that there's people who've prayed a prayer at summer camp or prayed with a staff member and, and appeared to be genuinely sorrowful. And, and they, they would go back now and say, you know, for me personally, I know I'm a Christian because of that moment. And we would look at him and say, there's no evidence outside of that. And, and that would be the last point, that there's this moment of decision, that you can go, on, on that day, in that place, in that time, I said this. Now, now all, all I'm saying here is, you understand, hell is going to be occupied. We'll beat up Billy Graham for a second. Hell is going to be occupied by people, some of them, who walked an aisle to Billy Graham crusade because it was never genuine. Yet even to this day, they may point out, if you talk to them and go, well, gosh, I did that. I did that in 1974 at, at Sun Devil Stadium, the irony drips. At Sun Devil Stadium, I came to Christ. 
Now, here's what John would say are the genuine marks, and I'll give them to you quickly. Number one is, is love for God. Psalm 42, verse 1, is the deer pants for the water. My heart pants for God. Love God with all your heart. There's a genuine desire for God. There's a love for God. Unfortunately, these things aren't constant. Here's what makes this so hard. They're not constant and continually growing deeper. It's not like something that's just moving like this, or it's not that I just start up to this and I stay at this point, but there's moments where I, some, I'll look at my own life. Sometimes I feel so close to him, it's like I can reach out and touch him, and other times I'm going to, you're not even in the, forget zip code. You're, at, you're on Mars or something. Here's the second thing, repentance for sin. 2 Corinthians 7, 5, 10. For sorrow that leads according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leads to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. So we have people all the time. I, I, one of my early experiences with Larry Wright, so here's how Larry trained me. I hung around with him a lot. We talked a lot. We spent hours and hours and hours and hours and hours talking, but we'd hang around. So one time he and I are hit this place, and this guy comes up. I'm sorry to interrupt, and he, he just feels he needs to confess. He knows Larry confessed all this sin, and he just pukes out all of this sin. It was actually kind of a cool moment, and he's crying, and he's weeping, and he's sorrowful, and all that goes with it. I'll see you next week. And he walked away, and I said to Larry, that was really cool. And Larry said, we'll see. And I thought, well, you cynical old whatever you are. And really what he was is just a little bit ahead of me on the education curve. So I've had experiences where one guy comes in and goes through this in big crocodile tears, and another guy comes in, goes through it, crocodile tears. One guy walks faithfully with the Lord for the rest of his life, and the other you never see again. Denies Christ. But genuine repentance. Genuine humility. Psalm 51 Sacrifice of God is a, is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. There's a genuine brokenness and there's a humility. There's, there's an absence. It's not to say you're never confident again, but there's an absence of self-confidence. There's the next mark. Devotion to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether then you eat, drink, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. So we're concerned about God receiving the glory. So all of a sudden, here, you take work. So all of a sudden, our motive for work is very different. It might have been that my motive for work was to be viewed as the top salesman in the department, be the teacher of the year, or whatever. Now, what drives me is that God's glorified in that I'm the best at whatever it is that I can possibly be. But all of a sudden, work is placed. Everything is placed in its proper perspective. Here's the next thing. Continual prayer, Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, pray about everything. 1 Thessalonians 5, pray without ceasing. Here's the next point, selfless love. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brother, genuine love. Here, let's talk about that. Genuine concern about people. So here's what I know. This is, this is interesting. I Think I, I think I'm okay going out here. It's a little bit of a dangerous branch, and hopefully it doesn't get cut off. So I, I'll, I don't know how often, but I'll, I'll, when I go to bed at night, I'll close out my email, watch a little YouTube things, my favorites, and I'll check Facebook. I never post anything, but, but I have people, you know, be my friend or whatever, and okay, whatever, good luck. Well, <laughs> then they all have a profile. Now, here's what I do. 
almost all of them, that I, and, and many of them are you. Some of you I know a little, some of you I know a lot, some of you I don't know at all. And, and so I'll go and there'll be a profile. Almost always under religion, it will say follower of Jesus, disciple of Jesus, Christian, whatever. Under politics, almost always it'll say conservative. Well, here's the problem with people like you. Okay. Me. Is that sometimes our conservative politics overrides really our genuine Christianity. So you see it in, you see it in the immigration issue all the time. Hardcore Bible thumpers who miss the fact that you're dealing with a 16-year-old girl whose parents brought her up from Mexico when she was one. She, 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 this is much more home than Mexico. She, I got illegal, but you tell me, this is a person. This is not easy stuff. That's the problem. And I'm a conservative, fundamental, blah, 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 hard-nosed, free market. But one thing I've learned dealing with people is you have a bunch of people genuinely. Immigration really brings it to light. You have a bunch of people, especially these kids that are just born here. I, this is a mess. So you know what we need to do? Love them, feed them, encourage them, educate them, give them English as a second language, do the best we can. Let the, go let the government deal with justice, we deal with love. And that's what we need to do. Separate. John says this, I don't like it. Separation from the world. I don't like that. Well, let's say separation from the world system. Because Jesus doesn't want us separated from the world. He said, just as I, just, to the Father, he said, just as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. So we're to be engaged in the world. You got to have world people all over you. But not the world system. If you're one of the, and I got, trust me, I got it. Okay? It's a dark, scary place out there. I want to be careful, but don't retreat to a little Christian holy huddle. You, you're the salt and light in the midst of that, okay? Spiritual growth. I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, you produce fruit. Should be fruit in your life. Should be able to look around, and you should be able to go, there's evidence of God working in my life right there. I can see it. There should be people, I was talking to somebody the other day, they were going to a class reunion. You go to a class reunion, and let's say since then you've been converted, or you get together, like I do this frequently, get together with guys I used to work with. There should be a situation when they look at you and they're going, there's something different about you now than there was then. That's the evidence. That's the fruit. Now, now here you go. See how this all, this is, this is really gnarly. Because you're going to want to go, I, I'm looking at fruit, look at what I'm doing. And Jesus said, here's how the world's going to know you're my disciple. Not if you're in Bible study, not if you're in church, but they'll know you're my disciple, what? If you love. Yeah. So, so, so all these things are important. We're not saying to you, church isn't important. I build a case, it's very important. But it's not necessarily genuine evidence. Let me give you uh, two more things quickly. That obedient life, if you love it, you keep my commandments. Two more. There, there's a hunger for the word of God. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, evil, slander. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. There should be something in you that desires to be in the word of God. You hunger for those things. 
It doesn't mean you don't read a book like Unbroken. I'm not saying that. But, I, but I'm, lo- I'm looking ultimately to, to know what God's perspective on all of, all, all of life is. And I want to be in that word. And then lastly, there's a transformed life. If anybody's in me, they're a new creature. These old things have, have passed away. Now, look at the result, and then Neil will come and lead us in communion. He, 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 say, he says this, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears my, my words of mine is compared like a wise man who built his house on a rock. So he said, now here's what's going to happen. When you hear this in your life, there'll be a stability. There's not blowing in the wind. And the reaction, verse 28, when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, and he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. They were challenged. It was brand new. That may be you today. You may be here today and go, wow, wow, that's all new to me. I wasn't raised with that. I've never been around that. You may be here today and be terribly challenged by this. You, you may be in this process and, and even confused by this. Or, or you may be somebody who indeed is a child of the king and God's just working his way out in your life right now. One of the things we want to do is be available to you. So here's what's going to happen. If you're over in the conference center, when this message is over, Neil's going to greet you. Right now, Neil's here to lead us in the chapel. He's going to lead you in communion and then a time of worshiping the Lord through song. In both places, the conference room and the chapel, when we're done, there'll be men and women here in the front of the room who want to pray with you. It may be praying and talking about salvation, what it means to, to, to be a child of the king, or it may be a need that you have. In either case, they're here to pray with you. Let me pray as Neil comes. Father, thank you for these awesome, amazing truths and for your son Jesus, for salvation that we find in him and him alone. God, I pray you take these things that we talked about today and you touch our hearts and our mind. For those who are uncertain, God, I pray that you would bring the spirit in their life to convince them and uh, to convince them to those who are struggling, you give them comfort. Father, we love you and we worship you, and even that only because you first loved us. We pray to you in Christ's name. Amen.